Welcome to the Armed and Ready Podcast. I am your host, Jason Wood, the VA loan guy. We have a really exciting episode lined up for you, so come check it out. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Armed and Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA loan guy. Today we have Navy veteran Sean DeMartel with us, and I'm super excited to have him on here. Not only um, did he serve our country, but he's doing some really cool stuff podcast host. He's into real estate investing, volunteer work. So a lot of really cool things to talk about. Uh, so Sean, thanks for being with us today, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the podcast, man. I'm, I'm super stoked to uh, provide whatever value I can to your listeners and uh, ready to get after it, man. Cool. Well, let's, um, let's kind of kick it off with you know, your military background. Um, how did getting into the military even kind of enter your mind? Like what, what was the thought process there? I was a student at the University of Louisville, um, I was an engineering student. I was in my second year of engineering school and I was doing okay with grades and everything, but uh, I was really struggling because I grew up with a poor family. So like I was also working full time so I could pay rent, um, you know, buy books, things like that. And it was, it was pretty rough. Um, and I just felt like I was at this point where like, I, I wasn't liking what I was learning in school. I really just wanted a job that would uh, help me pay the bills, kind of just get me out of poverty and uh, also pay off the student loan debt that I was racking up like crazy, right? Yeah. So long story short, uh, my mother worked at the airport for TSA and one of her girlfriends there was married to an air traffic controller. And, um, you know, I've, I had obviously confided in my mom about my struggles and how I just need to find something else. And she, you know, gossiped with that lady, ran and then she said something to her husband. That guy said, hey man, you gotta come up into the air traffic control tower and check this out because this is a great job. They always need controllers, you know, come check it out. So I did that. And when I was up in the tower, um, you know, getting the tour, every single person in the tower was ex-military. They were either ex-Marine or ex-Navy. And they were all telling me like, look, man, like you can go to the Marines or Navy or Air Force and you can become an air traffic controller and easily get picked up from, by the FAA when you're done. They'll pay off your loans, all this stuff. And that was like, you know, the light bulb was going off above my head. I was like, that yeah. sounds like a really cool track that I could follow. And I did exactly that to the T. I mean, I, w I went and visited the Navy recruiter um, and joined up quickly thereafter on the LRP loan repayment program. Um, they did pay off all my federal student loans and I wanted to be an air traffic controller. I remember they didn't have any air traffic controller positions open. So I had to be in a, what do they call it? Dep or something like that for a while before one came open. And I was like, all right, I'll take it. I'll join. And so that's how I joined the military. And I did five years as an air traffic controller. So did you transition out of the military and go straight to the FAA then? Yeah, I, I, I was pretty fortunate um, in how my situation unfolded, but literally the, my last of my first day as an air traffic controller in the FAA, was one day after my last day on terminal leave in the Navy. Um, <laughs> you just that changed the most uniform and get it like that. When I was in the Air Force, I was in base operations. So our our school was at the same base as where the air traffic control school was, at least for the Air Force. Um, and it was interesting, you know. I mean, that didn't. That's not an easy school, you know. I mean, there's there's different right. jobs in the military, right? Then you go through these different schools for it. That's a tough job, man. There's a lot of people who kind of wash out, have to go back. Um, it's not easy, which makes sense, right? I mean, there's it's, it's a lot of responsibility there. Um, oh, yeah. And there was a lot of pressure at the school, too, because I remember, like you said, a lot of people wash out. You know, they do the whole 
thing to try to scare you too, where they're like, look left, look right. You know, it's likely that those guys won't be there. or One of you won't be here at the end. Right. They do that whole thing. And then the thing that really sucks in the Navy is that if you don't, didn't make it as an air traffic controller, as that job you picked, most of the time they made you an undesignated sailor and they like sent you to a boat and you would just do all kinds of crap work until they, you picked another job. And so it was just oh, really sucks. scary and put a lot of pressure on you. Yeah, it was just you didn't want to do that. Being air traffic control in the Navy, were you land-based most of the time? Were you on a carrier? How does the job duty uh, shell out there? So the entire time I was on shore duty, Okay. Um, you know, basically you have either a carrier or an amphib or an airport or whatever that you could work at. Right. Yeah. Um, air traffic control is one of those jobs where, you know, most of your career you'll spend on shore duty. Um, and I got a facility called fax fact here in San Diego. And I spent my first, uh, you know, contract tour there. And then I extended cause air traffic controllers have to do five years because it takes longer to train them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I told them I was getting out requested to just extend my orders until the end and, and they approved that. So I spent my entire five years here in San Diego on shore duty. That's pretty rare too, to be just all in yeah. San Diego. I haven't met too many people that spent their military career all in San Diego of all places. Uh, oh yeah. A lot of people would love to do it. Yeah. But. Yeah, absolutely. That's really sweet. Um, so any, any interesting mishaps while you were, you know, control and air, um, either on the Navy side or the civilian side? Uh, both. I mean, if you're an air traffic controller long enough and I was an air traffic controller for, you know, 10 years, um, you'll, you'll definitely see some, uh, in the Navy, I didn't see anything too scary. There was definitely a couple like minor mishaps. Um, you know, a year before I got there, there was a really big one where a coast guard, uh, C-130 ran into some helicopters. Ooh. Um, but Nothing while I was working at Factback, actually, that was too crazy. But when my first day of training in the FA, literally the first day on the floor with live traffic, I'll say, because, you know, we have simulators and all that. Right. First day on the floor with live traffic. I'm there with my um, with my instructor and uh, a, a little Cessna 172, I think it was, was uh, trying to get to Long Beach Airport. And he's down by like basically like Laguna Beach and his engine is cutting in and out. And, um, so we're pointing him to John Wayne airport, which is only, you know, three or four miles away. And he says, no, I think I can make it to long beach. I want to keep going. So we say, okay, you know, he's the pilot in command. So he makes the call. Sure enough, he gets past John Wayne. Um, the engine goes completely out and they crash land into a field. Now they all survived, but that was obviously really intense for your first day on live traffic. Yeah. Oh man, that's crazy. Oh yeah. And I've seen lots of like engine failures or electrical failures or medical emergencies, uh, different things where people had to land, um, in an emergency scenario. But that one was the only one I've had where someone like landed, not at the airport and just ran into a field and survived. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I had my pilot's license for a little while, just flying little Cessnas, you know, and when you're up there, the thing you're always looking for is a place where you can land just in case. Right. So your, your head's always on a swivel for that. I, I would have taken the John Wayne for sure if I were that guy. But <laughs> yeah, the pilot made a really dumb move. And there's a lot of pilots that will make dumb moves like that. But that was, yeah, if you're a pilot and you're running into some kind of an issue and you're in an emergency situation, you take the closest airport, man. You don't mess around like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just get on the ground. Um, well, that's, that's neat, man. Have you, did you ever have like any military and civilian aircraft, you know, stuff that you had to deal with and kind of like keep them apart from each other and stuff like that? 
you know, there's been some some scenarios where it got pretty interesting um, because over in Huntington Beach, they have the Huntington Beach Air Show, which is a pretty big air show. And so, you know, you'll get the aircraft uh, like, you know, you'll get your F-18s and stuff that will come to the air show, the Blue Angels. I've had an interesting scenario there where um, stupid me, like I had, I don't know if it was an F-18 or an F-16 or, you know, one of those. And the next controller that I was handing this guy off to, because uh, the the F-18s and those guys, they always want to get up to the higher altitudes quick, right? Yeah. And so he uh, he said, yeah, you know, just climb up to flight level 180 or something like that and get them up there quick and I'll take them. And I was like, all right, cool. So I told the pilot to expedite. And I mean, he went straight up. Like <laughs> I thought that he was going to like, it was going to take him at least a couple seconds, but it was like, he blinked on my radar and he got like really close to some airliners. And I was like, Oh crap. Like uh, I didn't mean expedite like that. And uh, learned my lesson though, that if you tell like an F-16 to expedite in like three seconds or less, they're going to be at whatever altitude you say. Yeah. I think it was straight. Um, vertical. Yeah. Straight vertical, man. But um. Yeah, I've never like, you know, the, the being that we're here in Southern California, the military aircraft are constantly going through. I mean, like, you know, constantly getting the guys going to either Camp Pendleton or flying down to Miramar or what have you. So they're honestly intermingled all the time in the airspace. And so we're always kind of having to separate them extra. There's always really cool stuff going on. And so we have a warning area right off the coast here off of San Diego. And the you know, nearby bases will send the fighters and bombers over to literally bomb San Clemente Island. That's where they will practice. Yeah. And so read that. that's pretty cool. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So you get to see all the traffic just flying over that. And Oh yeah. And then the airspace that I worked was actually that warning area off the coast when I, when I was in the Navy. And that was interesting because like you talk to those guys and they go out there and dogfight or practice bombing San Clemente Island um, and then the carriers, that's where they go and do their exercises. So you'll have, you know, sometimes three carriers out there and then they'll do the fly off. And that's just a big mess because, you know, you got like 60 airplanes all flying out oh, at the same God. time, trying to go to their um, respective bases and they're all looking for their clearances and that, that can get really crazy. Oh, that's interesting. It's pretty cool, man. That's yeah. a lot of traffic. And then, and San Diego has the Miramar air show. So I imagine you've got not only a lot of traffic just because the aircraft that are participating in the show, but it draws a lot of other pilots, right? So you get all sorts of other airplanes and guys coming here to see their buddies fly, or they're just coming to check out the air show and their pilot too, or, you know, they're just big into aviation. So the place probably gets crazy, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime there's an air show, it kind of stinks. Honestly, that that's a day that kind of stinks to be an air traffic controller because then they set up the big TFRs and then you got a bunch of knucklehead, you know, private pilots that didn't check their no tams and so they're flying into the tfr and you're like freaking out trying to get everybody to move and then it can just be a mess and usually the tfrs are really big so now all of a sudden you got less airspace tell me what tfr stands for a temporary flight restriction so okay. like they'll set up like a huge bubble like a huge ring where nobody that's you know any non-participants can't get anywhere within that ring hmm. and it'll usually be like you know what i forget what it is like 30 miles or something it could be pretty big just depends um, sometimes it's only like 10 miles, but they always put it, you know, in a, in a place where everyone wants to go. Like the Huntington beach, um, air show will be like right over the Huntington pier with like a six mile radius or something, which just so happens to be where the exact place where the flow of aircraft going to John Wayne need to go. So you're rerouting people. It's right over the long beach final approach course. Oh, geez. So it can get real crazy. <laughs> and there's some, um, there's some flight training ranges kind of out North and East of, san diego out there also right 
Yeah, that, so that's actually the busiest flight training area in the United States or in the world, to my knowledge. Oh, wow. um, so you're talking about like off the water of Long Beach is the Long Beach practice area. And we call it the hornet's nest. It's basically, and it's also, uh, you know, so you have a lot of people going to flight school, learning how to fly out there. So there's just VFR targets all over the place and you're missing them with your airliners, right? Well, what makes matters even more interesting is that that's also the number one place where foreign pilots come to train, especially Chinese pilots, because oh. in a place like China, they don't have VFR um, like that. So they come to learn how to fly there. And so you get a lot of these pilots that, you know, not to make fun of anybody for their accent, but their English isn't that great. Right. And they're trying to speak on the radio and it just makes it much, much more difficult because they're talking very slow and it's hard to understand them. And oftentimes they're trying to speak slowly so you can't understand them. And they're just speaking over all of, all of your airliners, you know? Oh gosh. And yeah. And talking on the radio when you're flying is it, is kind of its own language a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. so yeah, I can imagine having, you know, the foreign accent, especially like, you know, Chinese to English, that that's quite a difference, right? Um, oh yeah. I mean, like, you know, you're like you said, like with air traffic control and flying, I mean, it's a whole language. I mean, you have to memorize all these different phrases and stuff and say specifically. Right. Right. But yeah, like, you know, if you got a Chinese pilot, check it in, they'll check in and they'll be like, you know, this is Cessna one, two, three, November, you know, or November one, two, three. We would like to, and it's just like this one minute thing. And in the meantime, I'm like, dude, come on. Like I've got stuff I got to do, get off my radio. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. So 10 years in air traffic control um, and then transitioned away from that then. So what did you do after you left um, FAA? So the FAA, I just left actually the beginning of March. Um, oh, okay. I quit that because, you know, I've been investing very heavily in real estate for the past couple of years, I've been obsessing over that. I have my own podcast all dedicated to that. I eat, sleep and breathe it. And I reached a point where I can support myself with my real estate investments. And that's something that I've been very passionate about, like retiring early, being financially free, yeah. you know, living life on my terms, all that. Um, so it's still pretty fresh that I've retired. Um, and now what I'm doing is uh, living the life that most of us dream about, honestly, traveling a lot. I went to Colombia. I went to Thailand. Um, I'm doing more uh, backpacking trips in the national parks uh, coming up in May. So um, I'm really just living a pretty awesome life of uh, doing whatever I want to do. And I no longer have to clock in. But yeah, it's, it's pretty recent, man. I just quit in, in, in March. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So so walk us through the real estate investing because I obviously I you know I do mortgages right so I talk to a lot of military because most of my business are VA loans and so I talk to a lot of military people and I think what's really cool that I've seen in, as far as a shift in mentality is you know when I first got in the business um, doing mortgages for people everyone's just you know buying the regular single family house you know not not a whole lot of like investor thought process behind it. I mean, there's exceptions, don't get me wrong, but the, the lion's share of people are just like, hey, I'm getting a house. And fast forward, you know, to current day, and, and probably just because of podcasts and, you know, social media and the internet and stuff, I think makes it more present for everybody about mm -hmm. investing in real estate. So that's probably a lot of the reason behind it. But I talk to a lot of people now more that are more in that mindset of like, okay, I, I'm 
getting PCS here. I got to buy a house, but you know, here's my, this is what I want to do. Can I get a multifamily? Can I, what, what can I buy so that I can go use the VA alone a second time and keep that, you know, like, so they're, they're having, we're having these conversations, which I love having these conversations because now they're starting to, to think strategically rather than, well, let's just get me the coolest, most awesome house in this area. And we'll worry about the rest later, which used to be the the protocol. Right. So yeah. it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy it a lot. And I'm, it, it impresses me because like, you're someone who, you know, walk the walk. Right. So, you know, thinking of the long term, like, Hey, how do I get financially free, support myself with this real estate thing, um, is the long-term dream for, I think most of these people in that mindset. So, um, mm-hmm. Tell me about like, like, how did you start? Right. I think that's an important thing for people. Like what was the first property? And then how did you get to where you are now where you don't have to have a full-time job? So the way it all started, um, I'll, I'll go a little bit further back. And basically I was grabbing a coffee with a good buddy of mine who was a real estate agent. And like you said about the podcast, he was, I, I was basically telling him like, look, man, like I'm making great money now. I, I got my dream job and I, I want to invest this money because, you know, I don't, I want to be smart with it. And he said, Hey, you should check out this podcast called the bigger pockets podcast. And this is like six years ago or something like that. I don't know. And uh, he's like, you know, it's, it's all about real estate investing. You should really invest in real estate. And I'm like, yeah, I know, man. Like that's, that's, you know, number one, right. That's what people always recommend. I started listening to that podcast one day when I was on a road trip with my girlfriend and I just got hooked. Like it all made sense to me. You know, it's, I was hearing all these stories of people, retiring early, people living off cash flow. And that was speaking to me on so many different levels, especially because the job I was working was a really tough job. So, you know, fast forward, and I started listening to every podcast I could, Uh, you know, if a guest on that podcast, I was listening to mentioned a book, I would buy the book and I would read it. I really became obsessed. I mean, I don't think I've ever been as passionate to learn as I was when it comes to real estate. I wasn't a big reader. And now I've got stacks of books piled, you know, six feet high of every book that anybody had ever mentioned about real estate investing. Um, I got really into the multifamily um, thing because that's where I was he- hearing about scale- scalability, yeah. about really being able to, uh, you know, get into that higher echelon of income. So fast forward a little bit more. And uh, at my air traffic control job, I was, you know, communicating this and, and kind of going through this whole process with my two partners, who are my partners at Pack 3 Capital, Mike and Rich. And uh, we were all looking for our first investments um, in, or, you know, bigger multifamily investments in real estate. And then one of us came up with the idea, like, well, why don't we just go ahead and partner since we all want to get into multifamily? Let's just go uh, buy a, an apartment complex because that's where we want to get anyways. Let's jump right into it. So every single one of us did what a lot of people would say, do not do. That's crazy. We liquidated our TSPs, which is for those who don't know what those are. I mean, we're on armed and ready, so everyone should know what that is, but our 401ks, right? Right. But uh, we liquidated those and we went and bought a 32 unit apartment complex in Greenwood, Indiana, which is a suburb, basically a right outside of uh, Indianapolis. So what did, what? let me pause you for a sec. So what did the numbers look like? Because I hear... And I know a lot of my my clients hear this too. Like thirty-two unit apartment complex sounds like you need a gazillion dollars and a right. gazillion dollars of down payment. So walk us through like a little bit of the numbers because I, I'm, I'm taking it it wasn't a gazillion. Yeah. So we had four hundred k, 
Um, and we, the purchase price of this apartment complex was $1.2 million, okay. which is honestly pretty low for an apartment complex yeah. like that. And the reason why it was, is because it was basically owned by a, sl a slumlord for lack of better term. Um, it was a 1968 apartment complex that needed a lot of work. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you, we made a lot of mistakes on that property. We, um, we needed more money. <laughs> so since we're on the money thing, we needed another about $200,000, which we went and borrowed um, from a private in uh, investor. But uh, basically, we went in and uh, we bought that for, I believe, 20% down. Uh, we basically renovated, well, we completely renovated half of the units. Um, we did a whole bunch of stuff to the exterior. I won't go down the whole list because uh, it'll probably sure. take too long, but yeah. we, we basically flipped the apartment if you want to think about it like that. Okay. So we bought it for 1.2 million in 2019 and we just sold it in January for 3.1 million. Not bad. So it was a good investment. Yeah. Uh, we basically crushed it. And, um, you know, we've, it, for a lot of reasons, I mean, you know, when it comes to the multifamily space, there's a lot of reasons why commercial multifamily, you know, you're able to crush it like that by adding value and raising the net operating income and all that kind of stuff. But that first investment really helped propel me um, forward because from there, um, our, what we, what me and my partners really wanted to get into was, were syndications, which essentially is when you have a group like ours that will raise money from investors, um, you know, form an LLC, all that kind of stuff, and then use that capital to go and purchase large apartment complexes and do the same business plan we did, except you're just distributing cash flow to the investors, right? Right. Um, so each quarter, there is money left over after all the bills are paid and rents collected and all that. We distribute that to investors. And then when we sell it, the investors get a huge chunk of money too. Um, so last year, we did our first two syndications. We got a 150-unit apartment complex and 145 unit apartment complex, nice. uh, both through raising money. So that was kind of like really when the, you know, my real estate journey started to get supercharged. Um, because when you do syndications, if you're the general partner, you also collect acquisition fees. So you get paid at the beginning for putting everything together and doing all that, right? Because right. it's a, a kind of a big endeavor. Yeah. Um, so we did that. And then I also started to purchase Airbnb properties on the side um, because those are kind of just easy to acquire and provide, you know, crazy cash flow. Yeah. Um, I'll, I guess I'll stop my rant there and let you pick where you want to go with that. But that's kind of like where my portfolio grew very quickly. I mean, really just over two to three, two and a half years, it, it exploded. Yeah. And it all, all stemmed from that first property, right? Cause that, that gave you the nest egg to go forward and do this other stuff. Right. So you probably in the syndications, participated in those to an extent, mm -hmm. and then also set some capital to do the Airbnbs that you have also, right? So able to kind of spread that around a little bit. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it was a catalyst in that way. And it was a catalyst in like an experience way too, and attracting capital and attracting important individuals that have helped us along the way. Now, um, I think the other big piece is we started our podcast, the multifamily takeoff, which really grew. I mean, now we're at 10,000 listeners a month and, it, and it's done well, but early on uh, when we, you know, we got that 32 unit and then we had on a guest named John Azar. And at the end of that, we were telling him like, Hey man, like we really have been looking for a mentor to like try to get, step it up and really scale into syndications and raising money from investors and everything. We don't want to do that without a mentor. 
And we're not liking a lot of the mentors we're finding online. Like we want a one-on-one mentor with, with people that are experienced. Well, long story short, John and his brother, Tony Azar, they've have over 8,000 apartment units. Whoa. And at the end of the you know podcast, we're just shooting this, shooting this uh, shit. I don't know if I could say that, but uh, sure. you know, we're chatting afterwards and telling him about how we're looking for a mentor. And he said, oh, let me talk to my brother and maybe we'll mentor you guys. And so they ended up becoming our mentors. And that's really what helped us. I think if we didn't have that 32 unit, and if we didn't start the podcast, we absolutely would not have met those mentors. And those mentors are what allowed us to go and buy those two huge apartment complexes and partner with them because they're partners. And, you know, I, I don't think we would have been able to raise the capital without those kind of mentors. I don't think we would have been able to find those deals. So that was another major, major catalyst in helping us grow. Nice. Nice. I mean, that, that mentorship is so critical. Plus, they've been there, right? So they, they know how to, like, take you guys up to that next level. And without you, you know, falling flat on your face. Um, yeah. Which is what you need. I mean, at that point, you know, you deal with other people's money. Like, there's, you know, there's a lot at risk for you guys in that, that moment, too. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're going to go raise, you know, millions of dollars from investors, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure there and you definitely want to make sure that you're, you're taking care of your investors money to the best way possible. Right. And that you're, that you're going to do the best you can for them. And I think having those mentors was just a good way of assuring that we're going to put them in the best position possible. Um, and, you know, trying to raise money from investors would have been a lot tougher if our only example for our track record was that one 32 unit property. It's a hell of a lot easier when you got somebody on your team that's done 8,000 units, you yeah. know, yeah, a lot of credibility there, right? Yeah. Um, so when you guys were looking, or or I should say weren't, but are looking for properties, are there specific areas in the country that you're more keen to, areas that you avoid? And then, you know, what kind of what kind of things within a particular like city or something are you looking for? You know, are you focused on, you know, demographic things like job growth and, and wages and, and things like that? Like, tell us a little bit how you come to find like, Hey, we're going to look for apartments in this part of the country. So like you alluded to, we do, we, we pay for data, um, on numerous different data websites like CoStar and even neighborhood scout. And we look for cities that have, you know, consistent population growth over time, consistent job growth over time. Uh, those are the two key indicators there because that just makes everything easier, right? Yeah. If more people are moving there, if more jobs are going there, more high paying jobs, then that's a good indicator that rents and, you know, the demand is going to increase for those rental units. So those are the two primary ones. We also like to find, you know, cities that have a good mixture of, of jobs, right? Uh, you don't want it to be just one primary employer that's responsible for the vast majority of all the jobs, because if that, if that employer leaves, which happens, then that can completely derail your business plan. Yeah. So you know, like we, we want so a, a mixture of tech jobs of, you know, nice blue collar jobs, um, all of that stuff so, so that we can protect for that. Um, and we also like look down to the specific neighborhood. I mean, we're looking at median household income because you've got to do the math to make sure that the majority of people living in that neighborhood can afford if you raise rents, right? Right. Um, you know, because normally you want people that make three times gross of what the monthly rent is. So you got to make sure that those people can in that area can actually afford that. So we're looking at the median household income. We're looking at uh, the crime rates in schools. You know, you want to make sure that um, 
that, you know, you're not buying in a, a bad area, you know, it's great if populations growing, but if you're buying in an area that has terrible schools, then people with kids aren't going to want to go there as much. So, you know, going back to that first property, we bought the 32 unit, we felt super confident because we knew we were buying the worst apartment complex in the best neighborhood. I mean, it, this place literally had top-notch 10 out of 10 rated schools. Oh. Um, it had low crime rates. You know, the median household income, I believe, was 65000 which for the Midwest is pretty dang good. Um, and there was just, you know, that's an old adage in real estate, always buy the worst house in the best neighborhood. And we did that except with an apartment complex. Yeah. And, you know, on all the properties we've purchased since then, it's been the same formula. Any areas that you kind of stay away from for, for a particular reason? I pretty much stay away from like northern. I, I basically, if you just draw the border of the United States, um, we basically stay away from the coast for the most part, like the West Coast. Um, we don't like states that aren't landlord friendly, you know, like states that um, tend to lean heavily towards the tenant and give them, you know, we'll allow them to not pay rent for months on end. Um, things like that. We'll avoid those States. And also the coastal communities tend to just be extremely expensive. So that was, it's a higher barrier to entry for guys like us. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, for the most part, we're just sticking to the Southeast because that's where a lot of net migration is going in the United States. Yeah. Um, a little bit of the Midwest, what we look in obviously because we were in Indy, but um, yeah, we stay away from the north, the west, the, the straight up east coast, and then south coastal communities. That's that's interesting. I hear, um, you know, speaking of like the migration patterns, you know, a lot of people leaving the the bigger metro areas, like coastal cities and stuff, right? And um, so I hear, you know, North Carolina is becoming kind of a popular area. But like you mentioned, you know, a lot of the um, the southeast, Florida is another really popular place. Um, of course, Texas runs in there too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that now you also have Airbnbs, right? And that's, so that's, that's a hot conversation piece, right? Everyone wants to talk about Airbnbs and, you know, every time I, I don't have any, but every time I start to think about, okay, maybe I should look into doing one. Then I start seeing some sort of new, like proposed legislation that's going to tighten it down. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and I think that's always, kind of in the mix, at least, at least where we are in the San Diego area. Right. So, um, walk us through a little bit, like, how did you get into doing the Airbnbs? Um, where do you have them? Like, how does that whole thing line up? So you brought up a good point. The absolute biggest risk with Airbnbs is local regulations. I mean, there's no doubt about it because if you buy a property and all of a sudden they flip the legislation on you and you can't operate, you could be screwed. Now I own an Airbnb in San Diego. It's a, it's a duplex that crushes it for me. I mean, it's mind boggling how well that investment does. Um, but you know, you've, you've definitely, that's, you have to navigate the regulations. So the, the Airbnb I bought in San Diego, when I purchased it, it was wide open in San Diego and it still currently is in October is when they're implementing the new regulations. Now I'm going to be able to navigate those regulations and I stand a good chance of being able to get a permit to continue operating. Um, but like if you're somebody that has multiple properties, multiple Airbnbs in San Diego, you're, you're basically screwed because they're only going to allow you to have one um, if you do get a permit. Um, but, you know, I, I pay ever since all this started unfolding with the new regulations in San Diego. That's when I learned about the importance of uh, knowing that market. And I like to go places that already have established regulations. 
like the city council and the city itself have already debated it and they've already come up with their solution for a compromise. And so, for example, I have a property in Louisville, Kentucky, and they have actually really strict regulations, but I bought a property that was zoned OR2. It's, it was a new, brand new construction home that they built on a lot that was OR2 zoning, which means it's basically a commercially zoned lot, and you're allowed to operate a bed and breakfast on this lot. So I bought that property, and I got my permit 24 hours after I applied for it. So I think with Airbnb regulations, if you can navigate the regulations, it could even be an advantage. Uh, like yeah. that Louisville property, for example, because of those regulations, there's not a huge supply of Airbnbs, which means that I'm getting really high rates uh, on my average nightly rate, right? Right. That property is actually outperforming my San Diego property um, wow. because of that. And I, I do believe that if I'm able to get a permit for my property in San Diego, that the same um, concept will apply and the average daily rate will increase as the supply goes down. Um, but Airbnb itself is just an, a phenomenal investment because you're getting many times more than you would get in your traditional long-term rental. Um, you don't have to worry about evicting people. Um, I mean, there are you know, the rare occurrence of somebody that lets someone stay for more than 30 days on their Airbnb and then they get a squatter. But for the most part, you're protected from that. It's not like a long-term rental. I mean, these people pay up front and that's uh, handled by Airbnb. Um, you know, they're a short-term stay. So if they stay longer than that, they're trespassing and you can get the police to come get them out because you have another guest checking in at four o'clock or whatever. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot less risk involved with all of that stuff. Now it does take a little bit more managing. Um, yeah, but, next you piece know, I was going to ask you about, do you have like a company that manages this stuff for you? Or do you guys I manage it? it all myself. Okay. And the way that I do it is I use a lot of third-party tools to automate things, right? So for example, most of my messages are automated by this company called Hospitable. So like it automatically sends out check-in messages, check-out messages, and it even has a little uh, uh, like a software that can detect certain common questions. And then I have a pre-typed up response to them. So for example, the most common question asked by far is if people can check in early, you know, Hey, can we check in at one o'clock where our flight lanes at 12, I'll have an automatic response that goes out and says, Hey, unfortunately the previous guest checks out at 11 AM and my cleaning team needs uh, the time to make the place spotless for your arrival. However, I will have them message you as soon as it's ready. And so most of the time I don't, I'm not even answering the guests unless something comes up or something breaks. Um, and then I, you know, have similar platforms for, you know, my pricing strategy, I use a website for that. And I have a dynamic pricing. So the prices uh, change on my calendar on a daily basis based off of supply and demand. And you don't have so, to go set that it just is automated, right? So it's automated, I do make adjustments to it. So probably once or twice a week, I can go on and I can make adjustments because I can change the algorithm however I want. Wow. I can say, hey, for any day that's 40 days or more out, I want you to add a 20% premium for all these far out bookings. Or if there's an orphan day, which is, let's say Monday and Tuesday are booked and Thursday and Friday are booked and there's just this random Wednesday there, I could say, hey, do a 25% discount on, on all orphan days. So I, could, I have all these different gotcha. things set up so whereas the calendar is being adjusted and people are booking, it's adjusting prices appropriately. And I just go and check it. And if I think I need to make some adjustments based off of my occupancy, I'll do that. But I will say I probably spend less than an hour a week on my Airbnbs. 
and my Airbnbs are bringing in, you know, a net $200,000 a year. So my, my hourly wage for operating my Airbnbs is astronomical. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Um, now do you have like when you first got like your first Airbnb and I know this is like a thought that goes through my head and probably others too, is like, Oh crap. What if there's a time of the year, a season where there isn't, um, much occupancy for mm-hmm. your Airbnb, you know, how did you get through that kind of thought process and, and preparation for like, Hey, you know, like in this part of the country during the winter, people aren't traveling because there's nothing to do and it's just freezing cold or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there's two, there's two, uh, answers to that. One is to really know that if you're going to buy in a market, I think it's worth going on a website called airdna.co. And that's a data website that scrapes data from VRBO and Airbnb. And, you know, you can pay for a specific city and get the data on that, on that market. And it, they will have the data on like what the average occupancy is, um, in for every month of the year, uh, going back several years. Um, you can even get like, you know, what the estimated revenue on a specific address will be through each of those months. Like it'll parse out all that data for you. Mm-hmm. And it'll tell you what people are making in like the 25th percentile versus the 75th percentile of all listings with that number of bedrooms. Like, I mean, you could get a ton of data from it. So I think step one is to know that that market's data and know what that dip in occupancy and revenue is for like those winter months. Right. Right. And then from there, you it, that'll help you make better decisions. And then in most markets, I mean, you're going to make enough money to at least pay the bills in, in down season. Like you, even if you see like a 50% drop in revenue, most of the time with short-term rentals, you're still making pretty decent money, but you definitely need to have a nice uh, buffer for, you know, if, if the times get rough, like I like to have a three to six month um, uh, contingency capital sitting in the bank for you know, if something breaks or if there's a couple bad months or if the next COVID comes along and they shut down all travel or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, or, you know, if you've got the, if you're in a particular market, that's very, very has really high seasonality, you know, typically like ski resort areas will have that really high seasonality and you just got to save for it, man. You got to plan on it. Yeah, no, that's good advice. And then um, I guess for, for our audience out there, you know, as you're acquiring or have acquired your Airbnbs, um, how did you purchase them? Were they, did you buy them cash from like proceeds from the sales of these commercial things? Did you finance them? What did that look like? Um, share with us that. I'm glad you asked that uh, because for everybody listening to this, a lot of them have VA loans available to them. My first property was a, that was my duplex that I purchased with a VA loan. Um, and that property, well, it's technically listed as a single family, but they like built it out as a duplex. Um, oh, so it functions as a duplex, but it's listed as a single, single family. family. Anyways, yeah. I bought that with my VA loan, lived in it for a little bit, and then started renting it out on Airbnb, then basically completely moved out and still rented out on Airbnb. So I put 0% down on that home. And all I had to do was really furnish it and make it really nice. I mean, I paid an interior designer to make it super nice inside and all that. But my returns on that have been phenomenal because of that. Um, I made all my money back within less than a year. Um, And then my second property, this is another really useful tool, is a second home loan, uh, or sometimes people call it a vacation home loan. So you can go to your lender and for 10% down can buy a second home. 
it has to be like a certain, I think it has to be like 90 miles away from your primary residence or something like that. Yeah. And you're allowed to buy that and they'll let you Airbnb it. That's okay. You're allowed to Airbnb it while you're not there at that property. And uh, that's how I was able to get my second Airbnb property, which is in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so for anyone listening, you can get, you know, your first two with very little money down, but you know, as with all real estate investing, once you've gotten, you know, one or two, your debt to income ratio is going to start to get high. Yeah. So after that second property, I wasn't able to buy any more with just my, my income. So from there, you have to do what are called DSCR loans, otherwise known as debt service coverage ratio loans. Basically, they will underwrite the property based off of the income that they estimate it will produce. So there's certain lenders that will lend just on Airbnbs. Um, and they'll kind of underwrite it a little bit differently to where they're not taking into account your debt to income ratio. So all the properties I buy now, I have to use those and I have to put 20, uh, 25% down, unfortunately. Yeah. Actually 20% down, excuse me. So that's a really, really cool strategy. And I have a similar conversation, um, with people about that, um, which is especially for those that are active duty and PCSing, you know, like this is, it makes it easier when you're forced to move. I feel like, um, but buy, buy that multifamily with your VA, right? Because oh, yeah. here's, here's the thing. Like since 2020, when they got rid of the loan limit, if mm-hmm. you haven't used your VA loan yet, you can go buy a multi-unit, two units as a duplex or three or four units, and you can have zero down. In the past, before 2020, the VA still allowed financing those, but you had to come in with down payment. And that was really kind of the barrier to entry for most people, even though the rest of the math might have worked. It was that cash out of pocket piece that mm-hmm. was the hurdle, right? So now that's eliminated. So you have this huge opportunity, right? Where you can go buy, let's say as an example, a, a four unit. You live in one for a period of time. Um, I have a lot of my clients that they're buying four units. The other, the rent from the three, and they're they're all long-term renters. So, I mean, you, you definitely could Airbnb them too, but they're all long-term renters and they're covering, if not all of the mortgage payment, the majority of the mortgage payment. So you're living in your unit for really pennies on the dollar in, in in all perspective, right? And eventually the plan is to move out of that and rent out the one you were living in, right? And now you've got a great cash flowing property. And that's just all assuming long-term renters, you know, your lease, your lease people, you're not even, not even adding in the Airbnb piece, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that if, if anything, if, if, the listeners walked away from anything. If I was going to give them one big piece of advice to supercharge their real estate investing, supercharge their path to financial freedom, if they have a VA loan, I think what you just said is the one thing I would just urge them to do, which I know can be hard for some people because like, well, you know, I've got a wife or I've got this or that. And I don't know if I want to, you know, have people, if you could just delay that gratification of having your own big house for a little bit, Yep. And use your VA loan to buy a multifamily and either rent out the other units as long-term, but even better if you rent them out as Airbnb. If you did that and you were able to do it on Airbnb, in most cities that have regulations, almost all of them, if you live on the premises, it's wide open. They'll let you, it's the same thing as happening in San Diego. If you live on the property, they don't care. You can Airbnb it. That's fine. So in most cities in this country, if you buy a fourplex and you uh, put the other three units on Airbnb, you will make thousands of dollars a month, not have to cover the mortgage yourself. And that will just completely change your life. Totally. And then it sets you up for 
the 10% down vacation home, right? Because Mm -hmm. you got all this cash flow. If you're still active duty, you're not even spending your BAH because the rents cover the mortgage, right? So you got BAH. Mm -hmm. So if you're good at saving, save all your BAH and any extra you can save from the rents. And then when the time is right, you'll get the next place. And that, and then, you know, you can put, if it's, if you're still living in that multifamily, then it's the vacation home, you know, in, in Kentucky, right. And it's 10% down for that. And then the revenue and saving the BAH again. Right. And then it's, and then you go buy the next place and this next place might, it might be PCS season again by the time you buy that one. Right. So now you're forced to go move and buy another primary residence, which you get the lowest down payments on. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can keep doing that all the meanwhile, increasing this cash flow revenue. Right. And, and you mentioned that DSCR loan. So that's, that's a new kind of hot ticket item. Right. And we have several investors that, that do it and it's cool for exactly what you said, right? It's it's not the loan program for like where you do qualify debt ratio, debt to income ratio wise. It's not like a better program if you qualify that way. But it's better for exactly what you were saying when you don't qualify because of debt to income ratios or maybe maybe you own a business and you just write off all your stinking income. You got money, but you just write it all off. So on paper, mm-hmm. you're showing like you don't make much, right? But you found an awesome rental property, Airbnb or long-term rental or whatever it is. These programs are really cool now. It's t- they are they are 25% down payment, but you're not using your income, personal income to qualify. It's the property. So it takes kind of like that commercial loan uh, standpoint. Because exactly. you're really using it as a commercial building, really, if you think about it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, eventually you're just going to, ha- you're going to hit that. It's a good problem to have, because if you have that problem, that means you're doing pretty good on your other investments, but eventually you're going to hit that roadblock where you got to find, you got to find a way to get the landing somehow. And those DSCR loans, that that's the answer. Yeah. They're huge, man. Well, um, Sean, thanks so much for spending some time with us today and telling your story. I think it's such a cool story to share, right? Here's, um, Thank you. someone who served in the military, leverage that VA loan and is doing it like you're actually doing it and, and you're living the dream, right? Um, I am, man. It's pretty awesome. I, I'm, I'm very blessed and I'm a very happy person right now. That's great, man. Well, um, we appreciate you. Um, if uh, anybody has questions that are watching or listening to the show, please feel free to reach out to me. If you want to get a chance to talk with Sean, we'll connect you with him. Um, you know, great, great guest on here and a lot of good advice for you guys. And um, I hope this brings a lot of value to our listeners. It's something that I talk about a lot. So I'm, I'm so thankful that we got a chance to chat about it today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show, man. I really appreciate it. You bet, brother. Take care. Thanks so much for checking out this week's episode. Please subscribe, click the link below, share with your friends. And hey, if you know a military person or a veteran with a great story to share, we would love to highlight them on the podcast and get their story out to everybody. Thanks so much.